Hello and welcome to another edition of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nicoletti. This is our fourth in our Basic Doctrine series on the principles of dispensation, apostasy, and restoration. Our guest for this episode is religious educator Mason Isom. Before we get into that interview, we'll now read from the section on dispensation, apostasy, and restoration on the churchofjesuschrist.org website. Dispensation. A dispensation is a short period of time when the Lord reveals his doctrines, ordinances, and priesthood. It is a period in which the Lord has at least one authorized servant on the earth who bears the holy priesthood and who has a divine commission to dispense the gospel and to administer the ordinances thereof. Today we are living in the last dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times, which began with the revelation of the gospel to Joseph Smith. Previous dispensations are identified with Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. In addition, there have been other dispensations, including those among the Nephites and the Jaredites. The plan of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ have been revealed and taught in every dispensation. Apostasy When people turn away from the principles of the gospel and do not have priesthood keys, they are in a state of apostasy. Periods of general apostasy have occurred throughout the history of the world. One example is the Great Apostasy, which occurred after the Savior established his church. Following the deaths of the Savior's apostles, the principles of the gospel were corrupted, and unauthorized changes were made in church organization and priesthood ordinances. Because of this widespread wickedness, the Lord withdrew the authority and keys of the priesthood from the earth. During the Great Apostasy, people were without divine direction from living prophets. Many churches were established, but they did not have the authority to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost or perform other priesthood ordinances. Part of the Holy Scriptures were corrupted or lost, and the people no longer had an accurate understanding of God. This apostasy lasted until Heavenly Father and His beloved Son appeared to Joseph Smith and initiated the restoration of the fullness of the gospel. Restoration the Restoration is God's re-establishment of the truths and ordinances of His gospel among His children on the earth. In preparation for the Restoration, the Lord raised up noble men during what is called the Reformation. They attempted to return religious doctrine, practices, and organization to the way the Savior has established them. They did not, however, have the priesthood or the fullness of the gospel. The Restoration began in 1820 when God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in response to his prayer. Some of the key events of the Restoration were the translation of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, and the organization of the Church on April 6, 1830. The Aaronic priesthood was restored to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery by John the Baptist on May 15, 1829. The Melchizedek priesthood and keys of the kingdom were also restored in 1829, when the apostles Peter, James, and John conferred them upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. The fullness of the gospel has been restored, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. The church will eventually fill the whole earth and stand forever. And now, our interview with Mason Isom. Our guest on this episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast is Mason Isom. 
who's a religious educator with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Seminaries and Institutes program. He uh, also has a master's degree from the Claremont Graduate University in philosophy of religion, and he's here to talk to us today about the topic that uh, is, is perhaps nebulous for some, dispensation, apostasy, and restoration. Thank you, uh, Mason, for joining us via FaceTime. Absolutely. Happy to, uh, happy to join into the conversation. <laughs> you're, you're living down in Arizona, right? That's right. Awesome. That's right. So you're just so the now, weather's just getting bearable. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so you you've had uh, a good bit of I, what we'd call I guess formal education in kind of understanding the religions of many different cultures and peoples, and so some of what we're going to talk about, I would be very curious to make sure we kind of couch as to how other religions maybe understand this topic, what we call a basic doctrine of dispensation, apostasy, and restoration. So let's first start with dispensation. How do we use that word? And is that a common word that people use outside of our faith? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and I think it's a good place to start. One thing that I think will probably come up a couple of times throughout this conversation is that we have a particular way of speaking in the church that has developed over the last century plus that has kind of developed outside of the broader Christian conversation. So while we might think we're using the same words, we'll miss the broader conversation if we don't understand that maybe other people are hearing something different than we want to say. And so dispensation is a great example of that. When we talk about dispensation, we talk about a period of time that the Lord has an authorized servant on the earth who the windows of heaven are open to, they're commissioned to go out and teach the gospel, and they've been given an authority to do that. And that word generally in in Christianity can mean uh, a number of different things. We find it first popping up in the New Testament, in the King James Version of the New Testament, where it means various things depending on its context. It can mean responsibility. It can mean uh, a plan for administering the church or, or the covenant. And then again, in modern Christian dialogue, there's, there's something called dispensational theology that we don't really have to get into that much. But if we were to sit down and talk to somebody who uh, is maybe really well-informed in, in kind of the broader Christian dialogue, they would be hearing something different than what we're saying. So what word should we use if we're trying to have a conversation with them? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the ways we can approach this is when we talk about dispensation, apostasy, restoration, what we're talking about is really, you know, when a missionary is sitting down and trying to convey this message to an investigator, what they're trying to do is they're trying to show a type of pattern that the Lord has used to work with his children from all throughout scripture. And in that pattern, another way we can maybe think about it is instead of dispensation, apostasy, restoration, what, what we can see is that the Lord gathers his people, his covenant people, and sometimes the covenant people reject that covenant and get scattered, and then the Lord tries to restore them into the covenant again. And that's a very clear pattern. Basically, that's the story of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, whatever it might be. Sometimes we call that pattern the Abrahamic covenant. And that's something that is maybe a little bit more translatable 
as we talk about people with people who aren't of our faith, but are acquainted with Judeo-Christian scripture. Okay. So why is this a concept though, that we would consider a doctrine, one where we'd say it's, it's salvific, it's got eternal principles behind it. When we talk about dispensation, how, how is it salvific? How is it relevant in that sense? It's a good question. When I don't necessarily think I would say that the doctrine in and of itself is salvific, but when we talk about how recognizing how God interacts with his people, that where the scriptures say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God is always faithful to the covenants that he makes. And we try and show people how God has been faithful. The scriptures really are trying to articulate how God has used his people, Israel, to bless the entire human family. And prophets, authorized servants, apostles have been a consistent way that he's done that. Okay. So let's move on now maybe to the the principle of apostasy and how that ties into this conversation. And this gets probably where I would say most of the other religions of the world will kind of see a line of demarcation where they're going to probably think, I don't know that I agree with you on that, but what? Right. where does apostasy come in in this, this conversation? Well, as you have noted, you know, if if someone is a person of faith and they're dedicated to that faith and they've been raised in that faith, as many Latter-day Saints have in their own faith, they're not going to think of themselves as, quote-unquote, apostate from any type of true faith. The word apostasy means a type of rebellion or even falling away. And we have to be very careful when we articulate that claim. And maybe missionaries in all of their desires to do good aren't as careful as maybe we should always be. I don't know if I was always as careful as I needed to be. That what we're, what we're not doing is we're not trying to invalidate other people's religious experience. We're not trying to say that other people's religions don't, don't have value, and we're not trying to say that there's no truth articulated there. We are making a very bold claim, though, that there are times that even the elect— and in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the elect are Abraham's seed. There are times when the elect do rebel against the covenant that they have made with God and that there are consequences to that. In to- today's Christian, Christian theology, we would articulate that as sin and, and the consequences of sin. But this has been the case throughout Scripture. And, and especially when we get to the great apostasy, we can point to consequences of the great apostasy, the type of maybe confusion and doctrine that has developed over the last 2,000 years, or the co- conflict in different understandings of, say, the Godhead, or the role of Scripture, or the way in which Christ saves us. And we can, we can demonstrate, look, there's, there's a broad confusion or maybe a disagreement in Christianity about how these things exactly work. And that can be an indicator of a falling away. And that's part of our claim, I think. Yeah. And I think in addition to that, and this could just be my way of thinking about this, is that we have a real question here with a lot of faiths that we're speaking about authority. And in in the dispensation part, we were talking about, and you mentioned, that part of what defines something as a dispensation is that there is a divinely commissioned individual who administers the priesthood and all the ordinances right. thereof. And right. with apostasy, 
there is a, a, a loss of that authority and a loss of the, that church organization where those ordinances are performed. And that is part of, in my mind, the, the claim, but also the challenge in being able to approach someone and say, this is our claim, that right. that power and that authority was lost. And it's, it's kind of a challenging line in a number of different ways. But I like how you pointed out, though, that there was a great apostasy that we refer to. But there's also kind of the way that the church has the doctrine laid out is that there is personal apostasy. And that's part right. of what we're talking about here. So in what ways are they different in a specific sense, personal sense versus a great or general apostasy? Well, you know, I think we all go through periods of our lives where we make mistakes. We maybe become disillusioned in some way with a part of our faith, and we can we can feel a separation that's created between us and maybe our access to the Spirit or something like that. And I, I think Latter-day Saints are as familiar with that experience as anybody else. What I think the distinction is between that and the Great Apostasy or even a general apostasy, which we see throughout the Old Testament, but maybe isn't quite as extensive as, as what we think the great apostasy is, is that when the Christian body or the covenant body as a whole, or maybe the majority of the covenant body, has turned away from not only the authorized servants, but very key parts to their relationship to God. So, for example, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that God's people continually turns away from him is through idolatry. Another way is through isolation from other people that they're supposed to go and bless. And the prophets are always coming to say, we have to worship the one true God. Uh, he is our God. We, we are his people. And, uh, and so when the broader culture of, of the covenant people or the church turn away from some of those basic principles and thereby kind of reject the authorized servants, then we have a multi-generational apostasy. People are going to be born into that community who won't get the opportunity to listen to prophets, who won't get the opportunity to maybe have access to scripture or whatever it might be. I'm curious what the value might be in a missionary dipping into showing signs of this happening in the past in the Bible or maybe speaking to how this sort of thing is even happening today with the differences of opinions right. and things like that. Is that an effective way to teach this? Or is that kind of something it, we have to be kind of in the moment with? It, it really depends on, on the spirit of it, right? We could really get into um, what might be called Bible bashing, right? And, and what you never want to do is sit down and try and pick apart the scriptures in a way that diminishes somebody else. Sure. And, uh, and, and I think that's maybe the spirit behind something like Bible bashing, but what we can do, and I think we must do, if we're going to properly say we teach from the scriptures or we teach the gospel of the scriptures is we can show that God works through covenants and he administers those covenants through clear and authorized channels. And that God's, people has always been under covenant to be his instruments to bless the earth, but that that people can still reject that covenant, can still turn away from him. But in his faithfulness, and this is really, you know, as we're studying Paul and come follow me, this is one of Paul's central claims, 
is that God is so faithful that he came to, in fact, turn our hearts back toward the covenant in Jesus the Messiah. And so I think we must actually show that part of scripture. And if you go to the title page of the Book of Mormon, the one that Joseph Smith taught Moroni actually wrote, Moroni gives two purposes for the Book of Mormon right up front. And one of the purposes is pretty well known, and it's that it's to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself on all nations. That's where we get another testament of Jesus Christ. Right. But the other purpose, the one that comes right before that, and that we don't often talk about, is that the Book of Mormon is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever. And, and so part of the central role of the Book of Mormon, which is critical for missionary work, is to demonstrate to investigators, to scattered Israel, that God has made covenants with their fathers, and part of our role as missionaries, as disciples of Christ, is to turn their hearts back toward that covenant. Yeah. And so, so if we're going into it saying, hey, look how the scriptures demonstrate that, that the church that you grew up in is, is wrong, then we're going to miss the entire spirit of that. But if we're going in saying, this story that we're telling here of gathering and restoration is your story too. It's the story of your father's story of you coming back into God's family. Then I think there's a lot of power in that story. In fact, I think that that's the story of the scriptures. Yeah. I like that. And that leads us right into restoration is the third kind of prong of this, this doctrine of we have dispensations, we have apostasies, both personal and general, but there's always right. this restoration, which is generally speaking, it's, uh, you know, the, that's the Savior, that's the atonement, which is why this yeah. always tends to follow the atonement in, in our discussion of basic doctrines. But in this particular case, we are speaking of a restoration and the beginning of a new dispensation. And right. we, we, of course, assert that took place in 1820 or started in 1820 with Joseph and the first vision, which I don't know about you, but President Nelson pretty much hyped that up pretty good. For, right. I'm excited. <laughs> for I'm our excited general for conference. That's right. So um, so we have that restoration. Why is how important is the restoration in the teaching of an investigator about the church? Yeah, I think this is as bold of a claim as is great apostasy. And we have to be careful again, and maybe some of the early saints weren't as careful in places like Missouri about articulating this doctrine, but we have to be careful that we we don't offend people while we're doing it, but we're stating something really bold, that there was an apostasy, that there was a scattering, and that Christ himself, together with the Father, have come to inaugurate the the dispensation of the fullness of times, what Paul articulates as the wrapping up of all things, as the union between heaven and earth. And he does that through sacraments, or what we would call ordinances. That's another word that doesn't really translate outside of the church. They might be called sacraments or sacred rituals. He does that through covenants, the way he's always done that. And he's done that through revealing or dispensing the gospel through authorized servants. Yeah, I was in a conversation recently with a, a friend who was a Mennonite, and we were going right back and forth on, on an issue of authorized baptism. And the most loving way I could say it, I, I told him that I believe that for an authorized baptism to 
facilitate a true covenant between that individual and God, where they become a Christ person, um, somebody who takes the, the name of Christ upon them. That needs to be done by somebody with authority, and, and that that authority has been restored to the earth again. And for me, that's a glorious message that we're claiming through teaching the, the restoration. Yeah, and to me, I almost think that if we soft pedal this in certain ways, we right. are neutering the power of its message. It's it's such yeah, a bold absolutely. claim that when you when you offer it to someone, it has to call in them something that says, "I need to find out if this claim is true or not." Because yeah. at some point, with some of these things, you can argue, "Oh yeah, yeah, we 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 do baptism." Yeah, we believe in faith and repentance and these sorts of things. You know, the first principles right. and ordinance of the gospel are not entirely unique in word right. to the church. So, but here we are making a claim that few, if any, are either willing to make or can even justifiably in the slightest make. Like the Catholics, I think, are the ones that we've often heard have, you know, they, they were here since Christ. And therefore, that is where they can claim some divine lineage. And. Sure. But there are others in the world that can't even come close, nor do they even try to make such a bold claim. Therefore, I think that's the strength of this, is being able to to turn something like this and not be afraid of it or ashamed of it, but to find the best way to to teach it. Now, in, right. in, in doing so, missionaries, members of the church, often come up with ways to try and teach these principles that um, are good, and then other times, they're not so good. Uh, what might be some of the methods of teaching the dispensation, apostasy, and restoration doctrine uh, with people in, in missionary work? What have you seen in the past as kind of a way that we taught that? The, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is uh, the hand method. And, and I don't, well, you can't see me, but there's, there's a method that I've seen missionaries use where they kind of count finger and it's space in between finger where there's a prophet and there's a, uh, an apostasy and then a prophet and apostasy, and they go down their hand. And I see what missionaries are trying to do and that they're trying to simplify this pattern. But I think if a missionary were probably pressed on that by somebody who knew the scriptures, they maybe wouldn't be able to show that pattern very clearly gotcha. in scripture. And I think uh, another thing that comes to my mind is that just as we have go to words for describing these things, things like dis dispensation, apostasy, restoration, these are perfect terms to describe them, but maybe don't translate. There are scriptures that, that we have go-to scriptures for these things that do articulate these doctrines, these beliefs, but that other people understand differently. And one of the things that I would, you know, one of the scriptures that comes to my mind that I used often was Amos 3.7 to teach about prophets. Uh -huh. It wasn't until after my mission that I read the entire book of Amos, and I understood that scripture to be teaching of prophets, but not maybe in the exact way that I was using it every day when I was a missionary. And so what I would, what I would encourage missionaries to do is if they have a go-to scripture that they love, that they read the context around that scripture. And okay. they, you know, if, they're, if they're talking about Ephesians 1 and they, they use that, all the time, read the entire letter of Ephesians and see what Paul is saying there. And because what you'll be able to do then is take other people's understanding of the scriptures and build a bridge to add that restoration insight that we can offer. 
Yeah, so let's let's go with one of the most common, and this is the one that was taught in seminary. It was, I think, a scripture mastery back when they were doing that. Is Second Thessalonians chapter two verses one through three, which is the mm-hmm. one that talks about um, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, um, right? And, and and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Right. Is that a scripture we should probably use with those outside of the faith to describe? that this apostasy was going to precede the second coming. I think you can use that scripture for to articulate that. I don't think that that's inappropriate. What what I would caution against with that is to say to turn to second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 and say, look, here's one scripture and then that proves that the great apostasy would happen. Paul, you know, Paul's working with real churches, real people and he's dealing especially in this letter with things that are troubling them right there. And he says that in verse 2. Don't be troubled by exactly when Christ is going to come again. Here's a little bit of a sign for you. Now calm down and focus on what you're supposed to be focusing on. And there's no doubt that Paul in verse 3 is saying that there's there's going to be some rough times before Christ comes again. Um, but but I actually don't think Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is the main source for our knowledge about the great apostasy. And while, while we can indicate, look, even Paul says that it's not going to be smooth sailing going forward, we can also draw on Restoration Scriptures, like, for example, First Nephi, where Nephi sees in vision what happens to the Church of God after Christ's death. And we can teach them straight from the Book of Mormon because it was built for that. Okay. What about Acts chapter 3? verses 19 through 21, where Paul teaches that uh, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Is this Paul again, or another writer rather, uh, emphasizing this need for there to be a restitution, implying of course that there would also be an apostasy? So restoration, restitution, these are words that um, that are absolutely grounded in New Testament theology. And so even when John the Baptist comes and Christ identifies him as the one who's spoken of in Malachi, he's still talk- he's talking about restoring Israel, restoring Israel. What I would say about Acts and, and really Paul's theology, even though Paul didn't write Acts, Paul is our first New Testament author, as, far, as best as we can judge, that Paul believes that Christ's resurrection inaugurates the restitution of all things. It starts it off. It begins that restitution, and the resurrection is the sign of that. And while it's not complete yet, and and Paul certainly doesn't believe it's complete yet, I don't necessarily think that Acts 3, or really anything out of the New Testament, is strictly talking about the latter days. So whereas the restitution of all things will happen, I believe Paul, the New Testament church, and even our theology today would suggest that's a process, not an event. Okay. So when a missionary is, you know, having this conversation, and again, we're trying to address the viewpoint that someone that perhaps is Protestant, maybe even right. a Catholic, that they would right. come to this understanding differently than we would, how would we teach it? You say it would be best to maybe kind of allude to these verses, but to really kind of go back to restoration scripture, or is there something else? I, I think you do both. I think you you take them to the New Testament, and you say, 
say clearly these New Testament authors are identifying this pattern. Paul is a Jewish thinker, and much of Christianity has forgotten that for 2,000 years. That Paul, when he's writing, has Abraham in his mind, has Isaiah in his mind, and wants to show how God is going to be faithful to the covenants that he made with Abraham. And in Acts 3, Acts 3.25, you know, we're talking about right in that in that same discourse. Yeah. Peter says, you're the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God had made with your father, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And that, that restitution, what we need to help people understand is that it's a restitution of what? It's a restitution of God's people into the proper covenant status with God, with their God. And everything that's been restored in this restoration that, as the prophets keep telling us, is unfolding is for that purpose on this side of the veil and the other side of the veil. And we can't just teach that out of the New Testament. We can't be afraid to teach that out of the Book of Mormon because there's power in the Book of Mormon and it's expressly given for our day in order to turn our hearts back to the covenants made with the fathers. And so I think you make that connection. And what maybe goes unclear for 2,000 years in Acts gets revealed very clearly in the Book of Mormon with Nephi's emphasis on them being a remnant of the house of Israel and that there's going to be a gathering in the last days. And this marvelous work and a wonder, that's what he calls the Book of Mormon, is going to be instrumental in that gathering. And so I think we could get better at making those connections because if we're teaching the message of the restoration and we're teaching dispensation, apostasy, restoration, we should be doing so with the end in mind, that we want these people to have an experience with the Book of Mormon, with the Spirit, and we got to give them a reason for that. We got to give them a reason for, look, all of these things that the prophets are showing, that the apostles are showing in the Old and New Testament, they're made so clear in the Book of Mormon, and here's where they are. Yeah, I like that. Well, to kind of summarize this, or to kind of put a fine point on it, I should say, we are in a situation where, again, we we have an invitation point, I guess you could say. This is, this is a spot in the teaching where we are to give the investigator the information and invite them to learn the truth of it through prayer and study. Is there any other particular place of study or another source that we could possibly share with other people that might act as a tract or some type of study primer on this subject? Well, you know, I love, I think one of the most uh, underused parables from Christ is is the parable of the wicked husbandman, or sometimes it's known as the parable of the vineyard. I think Christ does such an amazing job of demonstrating this pattern of God sending servants, right? The, the master of the vineyard sends servants over and over and over again. And these wicked husbandmen reject these servants, stone them, cast them out. And even when the son comes, reject the son and, and kill him. And, and I think Christ, for a different audience, for, uh, you know, he's talking to first century leaders of the Jewish people at the time, but Christ is still using this, this example of dispensation, apostasy, restoration, and he's making it relevant to them. And we're, we're living the same story. We're just living it a little later. Um, and, and so when President Nelson says the most important thing for the youth to do is to gather Israel, he's telling the same story that, that Christ is telling in that parable, uh, but he's telling it for our day. And so that's, I think that's one place that missionaries could go to 
to really demonstrate, look, this is in Jesus's teachings. This is fundamental to how he, he sees himself in this long line of prophets, of servants of God coming to deliver the, the message that we need to turn back to our covenant with God. What's the source for that story again? Which, which New Testament book is that? Right off the top of my head, I'm thinking it's uh, Luke 20, maybe that's right. Yeah, so Luke 20, uh, 9 through 19 has one variation of it, but you know, I think it shows up in some of the other Gospels. We can cross-reference from uh, there. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I, I, I really like that because it helps couch the invitation to right. say, we're making this claim alongside Christ, that this is his church. And right. you now have the opportunity to decide for yourself whether or not the message is true. Yeah. And, and you know, I think a, an amazing study for a missionary or any member of the church would be to study that parable right alongside Jacob 5, which is the allegory of the olive tree. Right. And look at how those symbols can cross-pollinate even and, and think, how is this symbol of the olive tree of Israel being incorporated in Jacob 5 to even extend it beyond Jesus Christ and into our day, which is what, which was what happening there. Yeah. I like that. Well, I thank you very much for your, your time and your insights on this. It's, it is a complex subject in some ways and, and in others, it's just very bold. And so it's, it's challenging for that reason alone, but uh, thank you again for coming in and, and giving us your thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it doesn't need to be um, a contentious subject. I, I think it's actually a message of hope. And to kind of maybe put a bow on, on my thoughts on it, I really think when we sit down and tell people this story of dispensation, apostasy, restoration, we're trying to tell them, look, this is how God has been reaching out throughout the history of the world. And he's reaching out to you right now. And he wants you to be restored to him. He wants you to be restored to your family. Um, that's a message that I think is so relevant for everybody. Everybody's lost. Everybody has lost loved ones. Everybody has, has suffered in, in various ways. And to say, he's still reaching out to you. His arm is even extended right now to you to come and to be restored. Because it's not just baptism. It's not just the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's the sealing in the temple. It's that turning of our hearts towards each other. That's what we're teaching as we teach these bold claims. And I think that that's the greatest message of hope we could give somebody. Yeah. I mean, when we think about it too, we're talking about this pattern and it is the plan of salvation. We came from a pre-earth life where we we were in a dispensation, if you will, and then we came to this earth and we're experiencing a separation. And at that time, you know, it's, it's a little weird to think of it this way, but we do have this idea that we are all being restored back to our Heavenly Father's presence through this mortal journey. And so I think that's exactly right. So yeah, this is this is our plan of salvation but in uh, in history in a way. Well, thank you again. I, I appreciate it and uh we'll certainly uh put some links to relevant sources on the posting for this episode at ldsmissioncast.com. Thank you again for coming on and talking about it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast in our Basic Doctrine series on apostasy, dispensation, and restoration. For more information, please visit ldsmissioncast.com for the posting of this episode. In the show notes, we'll have links to relevant information, and we of course encourage you to listen to this podcast multiple times in order to digest all of the different helps and suggestions that our guests have offered to you. 
Thank you again for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode of the Basic Doctrine series on priesthood and priesthood keys. Thanks for listening.